In my interview with Beth Thompson, I learned a lot about how a board of elections operates. As the supervisor, she is in a full-time role. It is not an elected position. The board of elections on a county level is responsible for the operation of all primary, general, and school elections following state direction, in this case, the New Jersey Department of State Division of Elections, in order to maintain the integrity of these elections with further checks and balances This office works closely in cooperation with the county clerk's office. In addition to operating the elections, the Board of Elections is responsible for maintaining the voter database, which includes party declarations, voter residencies for each registered voter, and really coordinates the operations of all of the district polling places on election day, including hiring and educating of poll workers, maintaining the electronic voting machines, and operating the absentee and provisional ballots for each election. I encourage you to keep listening to learn more about how elections operate at a local level. Welcome, Beth, to 60 Second Democracy. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you. For everyone listening, this is Beth Thompson. She is the Board of Elections Supervisor in Hunterdon County. Elections are always an exciting topic, or at least I don't, I'm not sure they were historically, but lately (laughs) elections are a very exciting topic. So I am thrilled to be speaking with you today. In one of my recent interviews, I got to speak to your colleague, Mary Melfi as well. Very nice. On a a few things. So I think this will really help round out the conversation in, in many ways. And yeah, thank you again for joining. So I'd love to get started just understanding a little bit from a background perspective, how did you come to be the Board of Elections Supervisor in in Hunterdon County? (laughs) So I was in private corporate business, kind of got burned out, um, was looking for a way to kind of withdraw as my kids were getting older. And I, you know, my mind, you know, there was a job opening 35 hours a week. Oh, that's part time. You know, that's not, not a big deal. So I accepted a position as a kind of a registration clerk uh, in, back in 2007. Elections were a lot different back then, believe me. And uh, when my supervisor decided in 2009 that he wanted to slowly, you know, retire, he had spoke with me and I emulated him, shadowed him for two years. And in 2010, he retired and I accepted the position as the administrator of the Henry County Board of Elections. And um, it's been a uh, quite an experience for me, you know, coming from, from, you know, working in corporate America to be a public servant. It's, I love it. I, I get so, it's really sometimes hard to to listen to uh, someone who works for the government to say they really love their job, but this is one of those. You'll this is the person that you'll meet that actually does love their job. So I, I it's not always great. It's not always I'm not always somebody's favorite. I'm always not always giving someone the best news. I'm not always um, that person that people are are looking for to get the right answers. I tend to to talk to more people that are part of the, the losers club than I am the winners. Um, usually when someone wins an election, I, I never hear from them, but it's the people who, you know, lose an election that really uh, are upset and that need to be talked to about the whole process. So I am so thrilled 
to be on this podcast today to talk about what we do at the Board of Elections, what our role is, what our function is. Um, and again, I'm one of 21 offices statewide. So, it, you know, what we, you know, what we talk about here today in Hunterdon County is probably very similar to what somebody would be doing in Hudson County or in Ocean County or Cape May or any of the other one, 20, 21 counties around the, around the state. So this is, this is really, a, this is a good day to really, uh, to get into the weeds and talk about what, what I do. <laughs> well, that is lovely. Uh, some of the folks I talk to sometimes they're the way local po- you know politics can operate or local government i should say uh, does not always translate to other places so that yeah. is exciting to hear so i think it would be great to just start by understanding you know in in your in in simple terms how do you yeah. describe your role so <laughs> so the board of elections overall is something that's called an autonomous office so we are uh, an office that works in the confines of the County of Hunterdon. They provide me an office space, uh, a staff, they pay our salaries, we abide by all their, you know, the personnel rules. But we are an actual office that reports to the head chief of elections, which is Secretary of State of the state of New Jersey. And then under the secretary, she's got the state division of elections that gives us guidance, all of the uh, uh, laws and all of the things that are are interpreted, you know, get passed through to the secretary of state who most of the time when you know legislation writes a law it'll say you know to be guided by you know the the secretary of state so then the secretary of state will then put together these guidelines and then the state division of elections will pass those guidelines down to each board of elections we are part of a large association uh we have our own new jersey association of elected uh, election officials we work together in unison Uh, in bipartisan groups to talk about legislation. So my role here in this county is to ensure that the citizens of Hunterdon County have the right to vote. We are responsible for everything in a voter registration from your address change, name change, signature update, anything that has to do with the voter registration. We are responsible for training the almost 500 poll workers that are there, your your lovely, you know, older people that, you know, you show up to and you see year after year after year at your polling location, we are responsible for their training. We are responsible for working with every municipal clerk in the 26 municipalities that Hunterdon has in finding your location to vote and certifying that it meets all of the standards for any physical limitations, physical abilities, phys- physical disabilities that you have so that you can get into your polling location. We are responsible for the voting equipment that you see on election day, which has changed a lot, um, if you've noticed. So we could we could certainly talk about that too. And we are also responsible for the receipt and acceptance and review of all of the vote by mails. So when you talked about you've had an interview with Clerk Mary Melfi, her and I uh, work together very well. So we have a yin and a yang here where. She is the person that actually issues a vote-by-mail ballot. The ballots come back to the Board of Elections and are reviewed by a bipartisan group of commissioners um, that are appointed by their political parties to work on behalf of their parties. And then that appointment goes up and is signed by the governor. It's a two-year appointment so that that they kind of oversee what goes on in this office for the best interest of their political parties. And then Mary Melfi 
will take all of the machine results since we're responsible for the voting equipment. She will take the results that come out of the machines and then she'll report those on election night. So we work together, we function together where her she has her specific roles. We're more of the, you know, making sure that your, your address is correct, your name is spelled correctly, that all of the data that we have for you is, is correct so that you can walk into your polling location, check in on election day and vote seamlessly. Now, does that happen every election? No, it doesn't. We think that part of our responsibility is to continue to try to educate voters. Um, so that is also something that we want to do better and to increase as we you know, get into these more contentious races and, and people that are uneducated about the process. That's kind of what we are really really trying to focus on is voter education. An uneducated voter on the process or even an uneducated candidate can be, you know, something that I don't want to say dangerous, but, you know, if there's misinformation on, you know, what we actually do here and it starts to go viral, then it becomes me with a paddle constantly hitting ping pongs and not getting to the point where, you know, I, I can do my job. It's more about, hitting a hitting away all of the the balls that are being thrown at me to try to make people understand that what we're doing is above board and that there aren't these nefarious things going on behind the scenes. So for us ensuring that we have the public's trust is one of the most important things that I can give a person and knowing that when they show up at the polls and they sign their name and they cast their ballot that it's not only private, but it is actually counted is probably one of the most important things that, that we can do. We work with candidates who want information lists. That's part of our job. So if a candidate is running for office and they want to know, you know, who's registered to vote in my town, um, that is public information and they're allowed to receive that information. We also are allowed to uh, provide information on who's uh, returned a ballot. So where the county clerk will give a list on who's been issued a ballot, we are allowed to let people know who's returned their ballot so that they can make phone calls to say, hey, you know what, the board hasn't received your ballot yet. Did you, are you going to vote? Things like that. We are, I think that we are one of the few misunderstood offices. There's a lot of things that people think that we do and don't do that, you know, we've hopefully squelled in the past vote by mail ballots. It was always a misconception that, oh, my ballot's not going to count unless it's a close race. And that's actually not true. That's one of the first things that we do here is um, on election day, while everyone else is out voting in the polls, we have our commissioners here and we oversee the uh, scanning uh, of every single mail-in ballot that's acceptable to be uh, counted on election day. We do that while everybody else is voting. So there is no there is no not counting a ballot if it's a close race, because honestly, the vote by mails probably get reported before the even uh, some of the machine counts do. So uh, that's a huge misconception. But other than that, you know, we're not responsible. Some of the things that we're not responsible for, we're not responsible for petitions. We are not responsible for, you know, slogans, things that that the county clerk would would do designing the ballot you know, getting those things done, that's all part of the county clerk's job. We are more on the semantics end of it. Again, you know, we have about 100,000 registered voters in the, the county of Hunterdon. Um, so we are responsible for managing that data, making sure that, you know, people who are no longer here understand that 
the law requires them to cancel their voter registration when they move away. It's not automatic. That's a big misconception that there's a national voter registration base out there. So if I move to Pennsylvania, does my, my, and I get a Pennsylvania driver's license, does that automatically cancel my voter registration in New Jersey? No, it doesn't. You do need to be responsible for, for canceling your voter registration when you move away. One of the things that we use here is something called a, a change of address. We work with the United States Postal Service. And if we send you out your sample ballot, which we're also uh, responsible for, re we're responsible for to, uh, you know, create that data of, you know, who gets a sample ballot, and then our county clerk actually sends the sample ballots out. If you move, that sample ballot comes back to my office, either with a, in a new address in the county, an address out of the county, or an address out of the state. Then we will send you a postcard asking you to verify your new address, or can you cancel your voter registration if you no longer live here? Now, we only get about a 10% return on those, so those people will stay in kind of an inactive status uh, until they actually return the card or phase out through so many elections. And other than that, our responsibility is to adhere to what's something that's called the Title 19 New Jersey statutes. They actually are laws that are written. And anytime that there's a, a change in legislation, those are the laws that uh, we adhere to in effective electioning. When we actually administer an election, we go by timelines and, and all of these laws that are written and some of them are, you know, been around for quite some time. Some of them are brand new, but that's really the biggest part of our job is making sure that we, uh, we are following the Title 19 uh, laws to a T. Well, that was a lovely overview. Thank you. <laughs> many, many things to dive into. Oh, uh, absolutely. So I'd, I'd love to walk back up for just a, a moment. Sure. That was a great overview. You mentioned, you know, the Board of Elections that there are, you know, 21 offices in the state. You also mentioned just the the staff that you work with. Could we start just walking through for a moment, you know, in addition to the county clerk, which you mentioned, who's really involved kind of in an election holistically in terms of different folks like you mentioned the the poll workers, board members. I'd love to just understand a little bit who who is involved in an election in the process. Absolutely. So the once the ballots hit the ground, so to speak, that's in September. I have a staff of five full time people, one part time person, and our function is to receive the ballots in as they are being mailed out, dropped into a drop box um, by a voter. They are received in make sure that they are in good shape and then they are locked in a file cabinet. So that's a staff of five. We're responsible for training the, the poll workers. The poll workers, there is a statutory requirement to have four poll workers at every district. The county of Hunterdon has 117 voting districts broken down throughout this 26 municipalities. Uh, we have about 44 polling locations and then each one of those uh, polling locations that houses the district, there should be four poll workers there by law. Again, doesn't always happen that way. People get sick, they call out, and then we are to supply, you know, two electronic poll books and one voting machine per district uh, on election day. We also, uh, we, we use public safety people to kind of monitor anything that's going on in the background on election day. For example, if we have a power outage, uh, we have someone who is directly in contact with the 
you know, the electric company with JCP and L, is this something, you know, when are we going to get the power back on? When are these issues? What are, what's going to happen? We have a printer on staff. Um, we have our own print shop in the county. So, if, you know, if there were some kind of an emergency and we had to shut down a polling location, we want to be able to ensure that voting continues. We also have um, someone here on election day that actually uh, we hire to uh, assist us. It's a third party vendor. So the vendor that comes in actually helps us run ballots so that the commissioners that are appointed by their parties are are basically their oversight really comes from them just uh, reviewing any obscure ballots, write-ins, assigning a, a write-in name to a, a specific position. So on election day, there could probably be anywhere from you know 25 to 30 people in the office, we also utilize our buildings and grounds. We have our own trailers, our own equipment, our buildings and grounds who are vetted uh, employees of the county deliver all of the equipment to our polling locations. So we don't hire someone from the outside. Um, they take very good care of our equipment, which is really important to us. So they deliver everything. Uh, and then if there is an issue on election day where we have to, you know, replace a machine or if they're missing something or if, you know, they're running out of supplies, we have these buildings and grounds, they have uniforms, badges, and then they will go to a polling location on our behalf and deliver the equipment so that we can keep, you know, functioning as an entity on election day as we're, you know, scanning ballots, taking phone calls, you know, dealing with the public uh, on election day. So again, it's the staff, really county staff, that's integrated from all different departments, from the print shop to public safety, to buildings and grounds, um, to the sheriff's officers that help us pick up ballot boxes. And then we've got uh, our commissioners and I'll talk about the, them a little bit more. So the commissioners are people who work on behalf of their political parties. There's two Democrats and two Republicans. The party chairs, you know, handpick these people. And that's per county? And that's per county. Some counties actually have six, depending on how big their office is, how many, you know, how how much the. So if our county commissioners wanted to add more board members, they would have to put a resolution forward and then budget for uh, additional folks to be able to to be on our board. But statutorily, you're required to have at least four. So we have two Republicans, two Democrats. So they're picked by the party chairs of the county. And then that goes up to the state chairs of the um, the state party chairs. And then it goes to the governor um, for the governor to sign off on their two-year appointment. So their functionality, again, is to represent the best interests of their party during elections to make sure that we are following the letter of the law. For example, three weeks before an election, they're required to come in and review any ballot that we have deemed uh, either deficient, um, missing a signature, missing or a, the signature doesn't match, or it's actually missing a an actual certification envelope. So they will review those in a bipartisan way, and they will vote to either accept or reject or assign a signature cure. And then that's really what they do one day a week, three weeks before each election. We are allowed to, by law, because of some changes, start opening up vote-by-mail ballots up to five days before an election, and we can start scanning up to five days before an election. We choose as a board not to. We open up the Saturday before the election, 
And again, these are county employees. They are not bipartisan people. These aren't candidates. These aren't anybody that are running for election. These are employees who will help strip the certificate so the ballot becomes anonymous. Then we slit open the envelope, pull the ballot out, and then it gets laid out flat, and then it gets locked up until election day. And then a third party or a vendor that we hire comes in and then runs all of the ballots. Someone who has, again, no interest in the outcome of any election in the county. They run all of these ballots through kind of like it's it's a Scantron uh, type system where it's programmed to read the bubble that's filled in to match the candidate, similar to what you would do on the voting machine. So the, as the ballots go through, they're tallied. And then anything that has an obscure mark or something that's called a personal choice or a write-in then goes to our commissioners who sit in a separate room than the ballot scanning, and they are fed ballot images for any write-in. So when, when they get the write-in, if it's Mickey Mouse, it's going to go to other. If it's a legitimate write-in campaign for someone, they assign that write-in name to that position. So for example, if you're running for anything from a fire commissioner to a board of education, you know, township committee, whatever it is, the board is responsible for assigning that write-in to a position. And it's a Democrat and a Republican that work together and another Democrat and Republican. So they sit at computers all day and just assign write-ins. They don't actually touch the ballots. They don't actually open the ballots, but they are there to ensure that the ballots are processed properly and that if a ballot is deficient, it is um, all four of them have to vote on whether or not it's going to be counted, accepted or rejected or signature cured, so to speak. And then the signature cures are sent out by my staff with a letter, either by email, regular mail. We, we call each person, let them know that they either forgot to sign, that the signature doesn't match, and then they have so many days in order to, to cure that ballot. Uh, and then on election day, when people are voting out in the poll places, it's really the municipal clerks that we rely on who the municipal clerks are technically the election officials for each one of the municipalities. So they oversee the signing in of the people when they show up, they help set up the polling locations, they call us and let us know if someone doesn't show up, if they're short. If we have people on standby, we try to fill those positions. If not, you know, most of the time we can move people around enough where there's not too many long lines. So the municipal clerks are really the, the forefront of what we're doing out in the field. So they really help us to make sure that everything's going smoothly. They'll report issues. And every single polling location has a supervising poll worker that we've kind of gone above and beyond with the training, uh, making sure that they are highly trained, that they are, we have like one point of contact. So if there is some kind of an issue or you know a voter shows up, they're not in the system, they don't know where they belong, that we can certainly help them and guide them through any processes that we need. We also have technicians on election day that can assist and talk to someone over the telephone if they're having a problem with a voting machine or if something's not connecting. Now with the new equipment that we've had, and if you've voted lately, you may know that we have electronic poll books that were required uh, for early voting, which started in uh, 2021. So early in-person machine voting, uh, starting in the November 21st election, it's nine days of in-person early voting required us to upgrade all of our equipment so that we could handle any ballot style in the county on election day for that early voting. 
So if I go to the early voting center in the town of Clinton, I can live anywhere in the county and vote there during that early voting, that in-person voting. So it, it did require us to upgrade and get new equipment. So our county now in Hunterdon is entirely paper-based. So our voting machines are a, a ballot marking device that will actually tally your vote at the same time. So it is a voter verified paper ballot that the voter is responsible for viewing before they actually cast their ballot. So they check in, they get their ballot, their ballot will have a barcode, which is basically the ballot style. It has nothing to do with the voter whatsoever. If you live in Alexandria Township District 1, it is that ballot style that will come up on the machine. The voter activates the machine themselves by putting the ballot into the, into the paper chute. The ballot comes up, they mark their choices, they print their ballot, review their ballot, and then cast their ballot. They can actually spoil their ballot if, if they look at it and it's not what they thought that they chose. They have an opportunity to quit voting their ballot can be expelled and they can do it, you know, try it again. They have up to three chances in order to be able to vote the way that they want to, to make sure that everybody that they want is printed on their ballot. That is was really important for us moving forward. So that way, if there's any question, you know, in regards to the way a person votes, that they are, re, you know, they actually will see each name, even a write-in is printed on that ballot. And then that's tabulated and images taken of the ballot it's tabulated and then it's recorded onto a small device that's the brains of the of the voting machine and that gets returned at the end of the night when they close the polls and that's given to the county clerk who then puts that into a system and then it uploads all of the results from from the voting machine. Well, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> for sure. That was a that was a great overview. I appreciate it. Well, I want to jump back to one thing and then come back to the yeah, machine. Absolutely. And I, I watched your your video about it also. Um, <laughs> how much training does a poll worker get, and what kind of training does a supervisor get? Okay, so a standard poll worker by law is required to take the training course once every two years. We know that it's not always adequate. Our training classes last about two and a half hours. They are trained on everything from policy and procedure, how to check in a voter how to use the voting machine, every, you know, how to issue a provisional, pretty much everything. This year, we decided to partner uh, with a grant with a company called CIDL, and we actually created an online instruction where our poll workers can test through every module so they can take this online. They have to, if you're hired for the first time, you come in person, you have to put your hands on the equipment. Then every two years, they can actually go and have take this test in the comfort of their own home, or they can do it as much as they want to. We encourage them to look at these videos and to test through before every election, but they can do it in the comfort of their own home. And this way we can actually look at their test scores. We can look at their progress. We know when they're due. So we can, you know, we can send them this to say, hey, you're due for training, you know, either come in and take the, the training course in person again, or please, you know, do it uh, online. It's a fantastic uh, video. We are really pleased with the way that it came out. And it's soup to nuts from A to Z, um, giving them everything that they need um, to be able to process voters on election day. But the, you know, we, we have tried to encourage legislators to increase the, you know, 
or decrease the amount of time. We, we feel like every year our poll workers, some of them should be recertified because again, they do it twice a year. So it's, it can be a little bit tough memory wise if they're, you know, especially when the procedures change, it gets a, a little bit difficult, you know, so there's, you know, it could be six moving parts to just plugging in a pull book uh, and making sure that it's everything is is together, it's charging, it's connected, you know, it's all of these little moving pieces. So we we really do encourage them to use this. It was it, it's really saved us quite a bit from having to worry about them not being trained and not seeing this. And and a lot of them will come to the training in person and then go back and do the test online and review all of the procedures. The supervising poll workers are, we, we bring them in every year. Their training is probably more like three hours. We do small sessions with them. So it's more personal. It's one-on-one. -on -one. They are required to uh, adhere to a lot of the other laws that we're required to do, such as a two-hour posting, so that if, you know, someone wants to know how many people have turned up and voted on a particular machine, there's a bright green piece of paper on the door of every polling location that will give you a, uh, a cumulative total of how many people have shown up in that district, as, as well as how many provisionals they're in charge of actually inspecting the polling location in the morning to let us know there's no uh, obstructions, there's there's nothing that's going to uh, interfere with anyone who may have uh, mobility issues from getting into the polling location. So we, we require a supervising poll worker to come in almost every year just to make sure that they're, you know, they're up to uh, any changes that we've done. We email them quite a bit. We give them, you know, additional resources. And again, that's usually who the municipal clerk will work directly with as well. Great. So you mentioned a few things about equipment. You know, you mentioned a few terms like, you know, we're an all paper county and, and going through. I also found it fascinating that you could go to any location. And from what I understood, that barcode then automatically correctly puts up your local voting Ballot, yes, your ballot so style. Yeah. Correctly. But you can yeah. that you could go to any machine in the in the county and vote. So yeah, for those nine days of early voting. Yes, absolutely. That uh that's very interesting. I had no idea about that. As yeah. Sure. <laughs> and again, that. you know, uh, considering the turnout that we just had in, in the general election, not a lot of people understand that it's available to them. It's very convenient. We had about a three percent maybe about 3,000 people, a little over 3,000 people showed up in the general of 23 over the nine days of voting that we had available um, to, to folks. So it, it really, the message is in getting out. And that's what we kind of hope moving forward, that people understand that it's the state put this forth to help increase voter turnout. We want to be able to encourage voter turnout. And if you are someone who doesn't feel that it's they can get to the polls on election day because of your job or your commute, this is now something that will be available to you in a primary election. It's three days of early in-person voting at three of our vote centers. It is nine days of early voting in a general election. Next year's presidential election, it's going to be five days of early voting in a primary and again, nine days in a general. And we have these vote centers set up. One is in the Clinton Town Library on Halstead Street. One is the uh, Route 12 
Library. It's the central uh, library for the county. And the other is a south location, which is the Hunterdon County Fairgrounds in the 4-H building. Those are open for the general election Monday through Saturday from 10 until 8 p.m. And then Sundays from 10 to 6. And again, it doesn't matter where you live in the county. You can go to any one of those locations for that nine days before a general and cast a ballot because you log it, you get checked in, and that barcode knows that you live in Alexandria Township District 2. So your Alexandria Township District 2 ballot is what's going to appear. You are voting on who your local representatives are all the way up from federal, depending on the year of the election. And that's how that's how it works. And um, we think it's a fantastic tool uh, to get to help increase voter turnout, but it it has this is our year, this is our third year, started in the general of 2021, and turnout this election was very disappointing. Um, the first day statewide, I think half the amount of people voted statewide in this election than they did in 2021. So it was not encouraging. We did get an uptick towards the end. We usually find the first weekend draws a lot of people. And then during the week, it's pretty slow. And then about four days before the general, then people start to come out again. And it's kind of spreading by word of mouth. People see the signs, they you know start talking to each other. And then we get a little bit of an uptick, but it is a fantastic way for to encourage people to, who want to vote on a machine, who don't necessarily want to vote on a paper ballot uh, through the vote by mail system that we have, um, who want to actually show up and have that experience of voting on a machine, but may not be able to do it on election day. So that's something that we really want to keep encouraging people to do um, because it's available and uh, it's pretty simple. Yeah, I was just going to say it feels like if you want to vote, there are many, many ways to do it. <laughs> what do. your schedule it is, you can mail it in. Absolutely. Person if you want to see a copy of it, but uh, that's good to know. And in terms of promoting that system, does the state advertise it does that come out of your budget how yeah so that was really the state really took on that responsibility and honestly i'll give you my honest opinion i think they're doing a terrible job at it we try we put it on your sample ballot we we put it on our website we don't budget for a lot of advertising because the state had taken that on when it became law in 2021 so you know whether you know, it was kind of silly in the beginning. They were flying um, planes over the Jersey Shore with, you know, with tails on it, with tags. They were, you know, had electronic billboards that were on trucks and things like that. But again, it's just when you have a system in place called vote by mail, I think a lot of people have been, it went from absentee voting to vote by mail. And a lot of clerks use the vernacular early voting because you are voting early if you're using a vote by mail ballot. They, they go out 45 days before an election starts um, to give people an opportunity who you know, are leaving the state, you know, flying south through the winter, giving them an opportunity to do the research on the candidates, et cetera. So that term early voting has been applied to absentee or vote by mails for some time. But we're trying to you know, do early in-person voting, which you know, to encourage people to actually be able to show up and use the voting machine that we have um, that will, because of the technology, it will actually, it, we can program with every ballot style, whether it's a primary or a general in the entire uh, county. 
So we really, we, we do think that there has been a failure on the state's part to really push this. And it's obvious by the turnout that we had again in 2023, but you know, you can, you can advertise all you want, but giving people a reason to come out to vote, you know, that may be a whole nother, <laughs> that may be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> Certainly. You can let me know if you don't know these off the top of your head, but uh, I think you mentioned the overall number of registered voters, you know, in Hunterdon County. But I guess, for example, how, what percentage of people vote in this county that are eligible to vote? What percentage of registered voters? Because I imagine there are less registered voters than there are voters. And then there's only a certain percentage of registered voters that actually vote. Yeah. And whether they vote in every election. But I'd be curious just to understand a little. I'm sure it varies widely all over the place. But just... yeah, and it, it varies on the on the type of the election. So we have a, a little over 100,000 eligible registered voters in the county of Hunterdon. So a typical primary election, which we have in June, and we should definitely talk about primaries because a lot of people don't understand what a primary is. But in a primary election, uh, maybe 11%, 12% if we're lucky. That's really disheartening. In a general election, depending on, you know, whether it's a federal election, whether it's a, you know, you know, what's going on in the county. Now we're pretty lucky here. We had in some instances, most likely about a 30 to 38% uh, turnout um, overall in this election. Um, again, when you see a presidential election, the presidential election, you know, usually we get, you know, anywhere from 55 to 65 percent turnout. So I think it's it's frustrating from an administrator's point of view to understand you're electing people to, you know, run your municipality. You're you're electing your mayors. You're electing people that are actually in control of, you know, your local money. And when people don't engage and show up to vote and they they take they take we have the we we have different categories for voters and it's it's kind of funny. We have the, you know, every four-year voter uh, and then we have the voter that doesn't want to vote for an incumbent president and will vote only every every eight years. And then we have the voter that votes every election or a voter that only votes in generals because they don't care about primaries. So there's all different types of categories of, of voters. And, you know, if you looked at the statistics in the last gubernatorial election, I think statewide, we only had about a 20 percent turnout overall in the whole state. Um, Hunterdon, we do, depending on local races, you'll see a larger turnout uh, in a local race, depending on if it's a hot button issue, if there's a if there's a public question to vote on. So I think with the inception of social media and how local governances and local advocates for questions and things are are actively engaging people, you'll see a trend where if it's a hot button issue that people are for or against, you'll see a little bit higher turnout in the in local races, depending on you know what's on the ballot. But typically higher maybe you know, like 30 yeah. or something. Yeah. So but it's not it's not great. It's not exactly you know what I would hope for um, because the law requires me to produce an election, you know, with 110% turnout regardless of how many people show up. So we have to be prepared no matter what. So even if, you know, a small percentage 
of people turn out. So for the, the 2023 election, um, can you go back again, to that for a second? So yeah, you have to be prepared to serve, I'm assuming every registered voter plus an additional right. 10% if they yeah. decide to register on election day. Yeah. If they decide no that they want to, exactly. You have to spend the dollars to prepare for everyone to vote plus some. Exactly. Yeah. Plus some. <laughs> so for this particular election, there are about 40,000 people out of the hundred. And I think we have, a we have, I think about 104 people that are eligible. So we had about 40,000 people. So I think it was just under 40% for this particular election. And I think you'll, you'd see the pockets in the different municipalities, depending on, you know, whether it was the board of ed, or if it was a local municipal question where that maybe that particular municipality, you know, raised the overall, you know, uh, the overall turnout. So it may have only been you know, 15% in one municipality, but maybe 60% in a different municipality. So depending on, you know, how it all averaged out, but countywide, about 38%, I think was the turnout for this particular election. And again, you know, you'll see, um, you know, in a presidential election where we could, you know, we could get 55, 60, 65% turnout uh, for a presidential election, but not for, you know, this was legislation and Senate, was the top of the ticket. And then we, you know, every election, you've got your local town committees, your mayors, your borough councils, every general. Now we have school board positions. Some municipalities have fire chiefs that they're electing. So, you know, and there's always a county position. This year happened to be county commissioner and surrogate on the ballot. So every election is, you know, there's something different uh, that's on the ballot. Every every elected official has a, a cycle or a term, so to speak. So, you know, we see the trends, um, which is, you know, it, it really is what I look for. And what I, what I look to see is if, is there something on, you know, social media that's become a hot button issue. And then we try to prepare to make sure that we have the strongest people possible in those polling locations to make sure that we're covered, that, you know, we, we don't have long lines. Um, we, we come to, in the state of New Jersey, I think people have a, a low tolerance for long lines and people can be very impatient. And we hope that, you know, we don't see those kind of situations that you saw in the news where people are wrapped around the, you know, the buildings and, and waiting to get in. But we want to make sure that each person gets their turn and that, you know, they are not uh, subjected to being turned away from any polling location. So it's really important for us to make sure that we're prepared, no matter if it's a 10% turnout or an 80% turnout. And I think we have one of the highest percentage of, you know, based on population of vote by mail. So um, we have about, I think, 15,000 uh, people that are issued uh, vote by mails uh, in a general election. Now, this election, I think about 10,000 people, sorry, 10,000 people um, return their ballot uh, in this election. And that's not that's not unheard of either. It used to be a lot higher. But uh, for a, a, an election like this, that was that was pretty standard to have that that percentage turnout in the vote by mails. But we do statewide have one of the highest of, of the thirty. So about fifty, yeah. So yeah. so out of the forty thousand people who cast a ballot on election day, ten thousand of those were vote by mails. So um, only about thirty thousand people showed up in the county. Um, to vote either through early voting. There was about 3,400 that did it early and then the rest were on, on election day. 
And I suppose just for everyone out there to understand a couple of <laughs> simple questions, if you are going to be, I, I suppose, the most responsible or engaged citizen in your area, how often would you have to vote to vote on 100% of available voting opportunities? In So, I mean, on an average year, we have two big elections. We have the primary election every June, and we have the general election every November. And it always, election day is always the first Tuesday after the first Monday. That's built into a statutory law, probably goes back to the turn of the century with you know, the sun and the moon and all of these weird things that they used to do years ago. But that is the standard across the board. Now, special elections can be called and they're mostly by school board. So schools can have special elections in January, March, April, September, or December. And they are required to notify us within a certain statutory uh, time. We used to have annual school board elections every April, but with some uh, law changes, they were allowed to move those into the general election so that the schools didn't have to absorb the entire cost of the election. So we are 100% school board in November in this county. The last school board election that we had, I believe was in 2015, uh, Reddington Township was the last uh, town to move their school board. So that was the, we, they had a single election by themselves. They absorbed the entire cost of it in April. And then they voted to uh, move those school board position and into the, into the general. So we don't have April school elections anymore, but we are, uh, so we are subjected to, you know, special referendum questions. So if a school wants to spend money that they want to go outside the purview of a general election, they are allowed by law uh, to call a special election and uh, they notify us in advance and then we would prepare for wherever that. Uh, so, for example, if they were going to have one in Holland Township, um, we would have to set up the polling location, set up the sample ballots, issue the vote by mails to anybody that is uh, set up to get a ballot in June and no in November. So it's the same type of deal where you have to hire the poll workers, make sure they're trained, you know, all of those things that go through, um, except for there's no petition file because it's usually a question that they want the voters to vote on. So yeah. it's no different. But if you were an educated- but it sounds like one, mostly things are yeah. moving in the direction where there are really just two yeah. points of the year unless something- exactly unusual right. comes up where you're voting. Yes. And exactly. I know I still want to get back to the primaries and we can hit yes. that next. But one other question I have for you, if you were say the voter who wants to put the absolute least effort into voting, but still vote, <laughs> what would be the best way to do that? <laughs> so the voter who is wants to put in the least amount of effort should at least read their sample ballot. The sample ballot is a mock of what you are actually voting for on election day. If you want to just vote across party lines, you will see the way that the ballot is set up. Vote by mails are a little bit different, but this is, this ballot is designed by the uh, county clerk. It's a draw. So if it's a nonpartisan position like Board of Education, she draws each position, how it's going to appear on the on the ballot, and then exactly you know which position uh, they draw for the party line. That's all public. So if they don't want to put any effort into it and they just know I'm I'm a Democrat, I'm just going to vote Democrat across the line, they'll just show up either election day or early voting, push the buttons, move on. If you want to be an educated voter for a general election, you take the time to email 
All of the uh, candidates that run have email addresses that are on the county clerk's website. You can email them questions. I, I'm not saying that they'll answer every single one of your questions, but you you have the ability to do the research on these candidates, what their platforms are, who they you know what they stand for. You can always um, contact um, you know uh, the either the Democratic or Republican headquarters, ask questions to them. You know that would be the most civically engaged voter is the voter that does the research on the candidates that are running to see, you know, which one fits, you know, who they want to represent them both on a local state or federal level. And one other question I have for you for the person who wants to make this the easiest, I guess, whether or not you research a candidate or not, would it not? And and so everyone who's registered voter, I'm assuming automatically receives their sample ballot. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. And then if you never wanted to go to a polling place, but still vote in every election, you could, or how do you go about becoming a vote by mail voter? So you have to actually apply for that. And the state made it very simple. You either get a ballot forever or you ask for one for one election. So the option is either on uh, the voter registration form. You can check box 14 uh, on a voter registration form that has postage paid on it. Once you check box 14, you will automatically get a ballot for every election that you're entitled to vote in, except for if you're considered, if you consider yourself something called an unaffiliated or people usually make that term independent, um, which is another misconception. There is no independent party in the state of New Jersey. You're either affiliated with a party or you're unaffiliated. So an unaffiliated voter to vote in a primary does need to declare which primary they're going to vote in before they can get a, an absentee ballot. But if you are not voting in a primary, you'll just automatically get that general election ballot the end of September every year without hesitation. So for the voter that doesn't want to put any effort into it, sign up, get this vote by mail ballot. It comes in a packet full of instructions, tells you everything you need to know. You fill it out. You don't even have to use the post office. It's postage paid if you want to use the post office. If not, we have 12 drop boxes that are open and cameraed, secured all throughout the county. There's 12 of them. All the locations are on our website. They're again also no noted on the vote on the, on the uh, sample ballot. You drop your box, your ballot into the box, and those boxes are picked up um, uh, at least two times a week, uh, up to the week before the election, and then every day moving forward. So that is the easiest by the sheriffs, thing. right? Yes. Yeah. And that is the easiest thing that that we can offer folks is getting that vote by mail um, and understanding, you know, how to use, you know, how to do it. Um, it is it is pretty easy. There is a video that Mary puts out that is step by step instructions on how to sign it. You you fill out your ballot, you put it in the privacy envelope, you sign the certificate. And people need to understand that signing that certificate is identical to you going to the polls and signing a poll book. You are verifying when you show up at the polls on election day, you are verifying who you are and your signature is your ID. Now, every year we get asked the question, why is it that no one has to show voter ID? You know, why aren't, why aren't they asking for ID when people show up? So my job as part of the, the, you know, we're the commissioner of registration's office. We are actually validating ID here when people register to vote. So we we get their driver's license, we get their last four digits and it finds a match or you know proves to us that they are who they are. So that part of it is already done 
and that's what qualifies you as a registered voter in the county. So when you're showing up, the law says that your signature is your ID. So the signature that we require on a vote by mail is the same signature that we would require when you go to vote in person. We want to make sure that that is the same so that we understand that the ballot that is in that privacy envelope you are signing that you are the voter who voted that ballot and you're putting your signature on there as an affirmation that you voted that ballot. It is your ballot and you're returning it to the Board of Elections in order to be counted. And I suppose technically, if you were very paranoid about somebody being able to vote on behalf of somebody who didn't show up at the polls, they could check the public record to see if. Absolutely. Yeah, voted. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it is a it, it, voter history is is public information. So we have. You know, people after every election, they look to see, you know, especially if they've lost, um, they get a list of who participated in that particular election. And they could be very disappointed to say that their neighbor didn't show up to vote or their family didn't show up to vote. Like it's it is a public record. So it it, it is uh, and elections are lost by one vote. So it is really critical for people to engage and to be part of the process, because, you know, we see. We see that, you know, when people lose and it's by such a small margin and they put a lot of effort into getting the vote out and having people turn up and it's and it's an election that's lost by, you know, two votes. It's it's disheartening. It can be. Uh, but that's what we have recounts for. That's what we have. All of those fun things that go along with elections as well. <laughs> and just to clarify one thing, you, you mentioned this quickly, but I want to make sure I don't miss it. So in New Jersey, there's two parties. If you say you are an independent, or in the case of New Jersey, as you said, that means you are unaffiliated because there's no independent party, you could still request a primary ballot. You just have to request it under one party, but then that wouldn't permanently register you for that party. You'd just be saying, in this primary, I'd like to vote on the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. Right. So, yeah. So let's, well, Let's just talk about primaries because, again, there is it, you are correct in one part, but not in another. So a okay. primary election is is it's closed in the state of New Jersey to Democrats and Republicans. If you are a member of the Green Party, Reform Party, Socialist Party, one of those alternate parties, you cannot vote in a New Jersey state primary. One of the biggest misconceptions that we've got is that a libertarian is tied to the Democratic Party or a conservative is tied to the Republican. They are separate parties. So if you pick, I want to be a conservative on your party choice, you are not part of the Republican Party. So you cannot vote. And you get a letter from my office letting you know that you have 55 days before the primary if you want to participate in that. But a conservative, conservative party member cannot vote in a primary. So it is a, a closed primary to Democrats and Republicans, because it's Democrats versus Democrats, Republicans versus Republicans, and whoever wins then moves on to the finals, which is the general. If you are an independent candidate um, that you want to run in a general election, you get on the ballot a completely different way. Same thing with anyone in one of the alternate parties. If you're unaffiliated, you can then request a ballot. You have to actually affirm which party that you you have to fill out a party affiliation, request the ballot of your choice. You then become affiliated with that party until you request to be unaffiliated, which again, these are, these are all uh, affiliation forms that you can find on the registration. You can find it on the, um, our website, these party forms, and the state will be moving forward and allowing 
party changes to be part of an automated process on the State Division of Elections website. So again, you get a letter from my office. As soon as you participate in a primary, you are informed that you are now part of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And if you wish to change, you must do so 55 days before the next primary election. General election is an open ballot. We don't count your party. You are not disqualified no matter what party that you're registered in. It is an open ballot. You can vote tic-tac, sideways, any way that you want to in a general. But primary elections are really kind of like the playoffs before the World Series. You know, it is the it is Democrats versus Democrats, Republicans versus Republicans. And then whoever wins in that goes on to the, you know, to the major World Series, whatever you want to call it, that's the general election. And then whoever wins in the general then they start their term the following January. So I hope that makes sense to people because there's a lot of confusion out there. But again, you don't have to stay affiliated with that party. We have we have the you know the majority of people. There are more independent registered or unaffiliated registered voters in this county than than there are Democrats and almost as equal to the number of Republicans. So when you look at the unaffiliated voters, they are the ones that can win and lose elections where they're not party, they're not uh, loyal to any specific party. They really are the ones that when they come out and vote, they're looking for the candidate, not, not a specific party person. So those are the people that we call unaffiliated or, or independent people that really just care about the candidate, not the real party. But I would imagine a rather large portion of them just don't vote in any primaries because Correct. they're affiliated. Yeah, so they're not exactly. opting in and opting out. They're just nope, nope, not at all. Not at all. And that's and, why participation in primaries is usually they are the lowest turnout elections that we have in the state. So and that's statewide. That's just generally the way that it is. We just uh, you know, I maybe 15, 12% sometimes, you know, and, and all of these statistics are all on the state's website. They'll put out the statistics for all statewide elections. They have them that go back for years. They'll tell you the percentage of people that have shown up, you know, and believe it or not, you know, people used to participate in elections a lot more years and years ago. Not so much now. You see a downward trend when you when you look at the statistics that go back, you know, 10, 12, 15 years. But yeah, so the, but the but the primaries are the least uh, amount of you know the least amount of people that show up and participate. Even in a presidential primary, it's not overwhelming. And just to you know make it clear for everyone, you know what types of roles are typically being decided in the primary. It's not everything, right? It is only no. certain. Yeah. So so the only thing that's permanent in a primary is something called county committee. So. The county committee is the lowest form of elected office that you can vote for. So if you are um, if, if you live in a specific district within the county, that's the local representation that they have. So that is decided in a primary. Those people that are that are voted on, it's two Democrats and two Republicans are eligible for every district in the county. So when those people are on the ballot in a primary election, they become permanently that position. Um, they don't really have any uh, power. It's not, it's something that, you know, they work within their parties. So these are people that are really, really working on behalf of their, of their parties. I'm not really in tune with too many of the county committee people. We just know that the Republicans vote now every four years and the Democrats do it every two years um, in even years. 
So in 2024, um, the Democrats will have their county committee races on the on the ballot. And then in 2026, the Republicans will have their uh, county committee along with the Democrats. So every four years, they'll both be together. And then every two years, the Democrats will will be by themselves. So um, and that's really the only permanent position that's elected in a primary. So, again, if you win your primary, you know, you may not necessarily win the general. And then the Board of Education is the other um, position that you will not see on a primary election that is a nonpartisan uh, elected uh, group. So they will file their petitions and get on um, as long as their petition is accepted, they will get on the ballot in the general uh, automatically as long as they follow those rules with the, with the county clerk. And then that is the same position as a, um, a fire chief. We have um, three fire uh, companies that, that actually put chiefs on the ballot in this, in this county. It's Franklin, East Amwell, and Lambertville. And those positions are voted on uh, almost every year if there's a position. And again, they file petitions differently. They do that with a clerk. But other than that, um, you're right. It's, you know, whoever wins in the primary doesn't necessarily win in the, uh, in the general. And the general is the, is the end all. For sure. But, I, and, and one other thing to clarify in the, the reason to show up on the primaries and, and I'm the, and for the most part, and you were saying a lot of people don't understand the primaries, but the primaries are really ultimately helping decide who's going to be in the state and that, like who's going yes. to be on the ballot eventually for the yes. state and national positions, not really exactly. your- Local well, position. Oh, absolutely local. Yes, absolutely yeah, like for local positions. Stuff. Yeah. So, so again, if you've got common council, you've got township council, and you've got you know three people that want to run for the council that are Democrats. Three people. They're all vying against each other in the primary to see who's going to be the top getter. You know, this year in Reddington Township, I think we had like five people you know, running on the different sides of the parties in the primary. And then whoever were the two top vote getters on each each side from the Democrat and the Republican side, they went on to, you know, be on the ballot in the um, in the general election. So it is that so you are voting in a primary at the lowest position. Again, county committee different, but your local borough council, your you know, your county committee um, or your county positions, whether it's commissioner, sheriff, surrogate, and then you've got your state positions and your federal positions. So the lowest that you'll be voting on would be your borough council or your township committee in a primary. And then those people, again, all advance to the to the general. It's just board of ed that doesn't get in a primary. Your fire chiefs don't go on a primary. And then your county committee is done in a primary. Gotcha. So for all of those folks out there who sometimes say, let's say, I'm not voting because I don't like the candidates that are on my ballot, they should be paying a whole lot of attention to the primaries yeah. where they could be making sure that one of the two candidates that they will ultimately vote for is somebody that they care about. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why primaries are important. It, it really is because they are the deciding factor. If you've got six people vying for one position and you just don't want to participate and you don't like who ends up on the general, but you didn't vote in a primary, you really didn't have a voice. And you were letting a small, small percentage of people, you know, take your voice and then pick the representative that's going to show up on the ballot in uh, in November. Right, because ultimately a very tiny percentage of total voters, yeah. registered voters, vote in a primary. Yeah, so you're absolutely. really letting a small yeah. and then when it comes to that primary 
ballot, and I know we went over this, right? But if you're really saying, okay, how do, how do these people get into office ultimately? And during the primary, does the party have it? That's, that's all going to be picked by a draw at that point, or the party has some influence over who's higher or lower on the ballot during a primary? No. So the way that the, the clerk does this is if there's six people running for one position, that's a draw. So again, you, we are, so if you look at it from an election standpoint, we're basically holding two primaries at the same time. We're holding the Democratic primary and the Republican primary on the same day. Other states don't do it that way. Other states have open primaries and they'll hold the Democratic primary on one day, the Republican primary on another. They have it open so that you can, it doesn't matter what party you're in, you can vote either way. New Jersey is kind of its own little strange entity with voting. We have our own laws and our own rules. So we hold both primaries on the same day. So again, if you're a Democrat and there's five people running for the same position, that is a draw that's done by the county clerk to figure out what position um, each person would appear to on that Democratic primary ballot. I just want to emphasize that point because that feels very important to me for a yes. lot of folks around and the again, country who yeah. are listening to the podcast. Yeah. They should really check to find out because Perhaps and, and you I could don't be really putting yeah. in the primary for the other party if you have a right. really well exactly. And if you want to change your party, if you decide that you know I voted Democrat my whole life, but I'm not happy with any of these candidates, and or you know we 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 hear something sometimes we see people who like see two people running in a opposition party primary, let's say, okay, then they decide, well, I'm going to switch parties so that I can vote for the other person. So that person doesn't win. We see stupid things like that, that happen all the time. And again, you, you know, is if you know, you know, what you're supposed to be voting for and who you're supposed to be voting for, or you want to vote for, that's, you know, it's your choice. You know what I mean? It's private. As long as you abide by the rules to change your party 55 days before the deadline, you're good to go in a primary. If you're unaffiliated, you have up until that day to walk into your polling location and tell that poll worker, I want to vote in this primary. You can't vote in both. You can only choose one. And then again, you'll get a letter from my office letting us letting you know that you're now associated with that party. You can you can change back. But we see all kinds of people that flip-flop, do whatever they want because they're either choosing the candidate that they want to represent them in the general election or they're making a decision to either, you know, not vote at all, or they want to switch parties so that they can either vote for the other candidate that they want to see in the opposition party, because, the, you know what I mean? It's, and it happens all the time. We see it a lot in presidential primaries where people are happy with a candidate that's on the ballot and they switch parties so that they can vote for the person they don't want to see. So they vote against the person that they don't want to see in the general. You get what I'm saying? So we see that a lot. Um, people don't think that we can see those trends, but we see those trends all the time. So it is. <laughs> but it sounds like it's it's, it's a perfectly legal thing to do. Absolutely. And the thing that you, yeah. if you want to be, I guess now we're talking about the spectrum of the most engaged voters out there. Yes, absolutely. If you really want to do that, the important timing is that 55 days before that primary, you would have to already be understood who's on the ballot, have been yes. paying attention. Yes, and that sample ballot would have been sent out how how far in so, advance? So that's kind of the thing that I have the most trouble with and that people are having an issue with. So 
When we talk about voter registration, your voter registration from county to county, you become a brand new voter. If I move from Warren County to Hunterdon County, I become a brand new voter. But my party, unless I change it on my voter registration, follows me everywhere. So there's a 21-day registration requirement and a 30-day residency requirement when you move into a county in order for you to be eligible to vote. But the party requirement is 55 days. So, and then if you change your party, let's say I, I move from, you know, a, a you know, one county to another, but I want to change my party at the same time that I'm moving, you could technically disenfranchise yourself from voting in that primary because you've missed the party deadline, even though you've made the voter registration deadline. And that's something that we want to hopefully change at some point. But those party, those party change deadlines were set in law for a reason to help people who are running to target their audience to figure out who votes who doesn't vote, things like that. So it's really important that people are educated, you know, when they're choosing and when they're moving and things like that. So party can be a real problem, especially in a primary. And if you go to the DMV and update your driver's license and you decide to, it's none of their business what party I am, and you hit none um, when you're in the DMV and now you've changed your party from a party to a non-party, and it's within that 55-day deadline, now you can't vote in the primary. So there's a lot of rules that that affect um, people's ability to vote in a primary, not just switching from an unaffiliated to a party, but if you decide that you're a Democrat, you want to vote Republican or opposite, or you decide, I'm fed up, I don't know who I want to vote for, I want to be unaffiliated so I can make a choice, you still have to make that affiliation change within 55 days. So there are a lot of people that switch to a non or unaffiliated status. And then we have to send them a letter and say, I'm sorry that you're not eligible to vote in the primary because you've switched parties after that the deadline. Yeah. Now, now we're, we're deep in the details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of nuances, you know, in For elections sure. that, that people are unaware of. And it's, it makes, uh, it makes our life a little bit crazy when people are uninformed. And unfortunately there's a lot of them. Yeah. But it, it does sound like if if one wants to be engaged in a fairly easy way, there are ways to do that. Absolutely. And if you want to engage in a more in-depth way, there's a little bit more of a learning curve to make sure Absolutely. that you're staying within the boundaries, which sounds yes. sounds reasonable to me. Yes. <clears throat> Just to to back out a little bit from from this topic into the general place, what's an example of of some meaningful change or something that you've accomplished in your role that you're, you know, proud of or or excited about? And so, you know, one of the biggest changes that we've done, you know, is is engaging with our legislators. As an organization of election officials, when you have laws that are written by folks that actually don't implement elections, it can get a little bit hairy. One of the things that we want to ensure is that elections are fair that they're open and you know us having open public meetings and educating the public. Um, we are starting to engage with elementary schools. Um, that's become one of our, our pet projects that thank goodness for the county clerk, we're gonna be, you know, hopefully uh, we're going to a, a school in December and you know, just speaking with these kids on how to do a vote by mail ballot, how to engage, how to you know, use uh, the tools that they need to. They're gonna pick a topic, how to vote on it, design a ballot. So we are really proud of the fact that, you know, we are kind of an open book. 
and you know being able to engage the public and being on the level that we can actually sit down and talk to legislators on you know some of the things that they come up with that you know it sounds like it's a good idea on paper but when you try to implement it not so good um, we know that there are laws that are coming. You know, we were given an opportunity a few years ago to review a same-day voter registration bill, and we were able to change the entire process, not that it's been brought forth to be voted on, but when we actually took the bill and read it and realized that this was not implementable, we were able to change the wording to use to implement a system that's already in place, which is our provisional ballot. So those are the kind of things that I think that we've, instead of becoming reactionary to every law that comes down, we've actually become part of the process and it needs, we need to do better. We need to keep engaging our uh, elected officials and the legislation and the Senate on the things that work and don't work. But that I think is one of the, the most um, important things that we can do is to, you know, keep the people who, you know, write these laws, you know, based on who screams the loudest sometimes um, and make them understand that sometimes when they scream loud, it's not always a benefit to the voters. And our most important part of what we do, I mean, you know, you think about elections, elections is, is democracy. I mean, people, def, you know, decry what is democracy, blah, 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 blah. But elections, that's the forefront of, of the democratic process, having elections. And if you're, you know, if you're too busy, you know, trying to listen to an advocate who may be worried about one specific group that may not be a catch-all and fit-all, it's got to be something that works for everyone. And I think that that's something that we are, you know, really partnering, you know, with, with our legislators and our Senate to um, have them help us create and draft legislation that helps voters, not just helps the people that are elected, but actually assists the voters. And that's really what's, I think, the most important thing. I mean, taking on COVID, taking on hurricanes, taking on snowstorms, all of these things that we've survived with elections. You know, 2020 was probably one of the har most horrible elections we'd ever been through, but we we got through it. It was an experience like nothing else. We processed 86,000 ballots over a 40-day period during, you know, one of the worst times our country's ever experienced during COVID. We've implemented new voting machines. We haven't really had too many people, you know, complain or get upset. I think they're very happy with the system that we picked. It, it emulated what we used to have, but gives them now a paper backup. But like I said, I think one of the proudest things that I think that we've done is to be able to develop relationships with people who write laws and actually express our opinions and have a seat at the table to make them understand that it might look good on paper, but it's not going to translate to the average voter and it's going to cause more confusion. And we still have a lot of work to do. I mean, just talking with you and you hearing all the nuances that we go through kind of gives a, you an idea of how much goes into implementing election, let alone voter education. For sure. And what you're saying is that's not necessarily by default that state legislators will communicate with county boards. That's really based on you all putting forth an effort. And I, yes. I, I'm assuming this is with the county clerk because she had mentioned this as well yes, to build absolutely. those relationships and get involved. So that's yes, absolutely. Yeah, we are. We have committees and we and we just, you know, we 
get involved in every single solitary piece of legislation that affects elections. And that's really something that we've worked really hard to do over the last three to four years. Like we have really, really nonstop worked to, you know, let them know who we are, to work with them and to, you know, really establish those relationships that, you know, where they can actually listen to us and, and talk to us about the implementation process. So it's, I think that's one of our, our most important achievements that we've done over the last couple of years. Well, cheers to that. I think that's yes. lovely. <laughs> On the other side of that coin, uh, what's something that's proven especially challenging or elusive in your role thus far, if there is such a thing? So I think, and I and I hate to say it this way. So the 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 biggest challenge that I have is the something that I call the sore losers club, and when information that is incorrect is fed to the public, you know, elections are stolen, you know, things like that, that when people don't understand the process, that's the hardest thing that I have to deal with every election. And the other, the other hardest thing that I have to do is deny someone's right to vote because they didn't actually register. They didn't, you know, do what they needed to do to qualify in order to vote and denying someone the right to vote is not what we are about at all. I am not in the business of denying anyone's right to vote. You will still be offered a paper ballot at your voter polling location through a provisional ballot. But if you're not registered in the county, um, and again, we are here 365 days. Our office is open, you know, January through December. We are here five days a week to serve the public, to answer your questions. Are you registered? There are tools all over the web to find out whether or not you're registered. But that is the worst part of my job. The hardest part of my job is denying, you know, someone's ability to have their vote counted um, because they were ill-informed. They didn't follow the rules. But I will tell you that I fight for every single one of those persons. I encourage them if they've been sent a letter of denial that they didn't meet the deadline. I encourage them to have a hearing with a judge. I am not the end all. There are superior court judges available on election day and the nine days of early voting to hear anybody's complaint, to hear uh, anyone who you know was disenfranchised by the Division of Motor Vehicles, who didn't have their voter registration process, didn't understand the process. There are appeals that you can go through, and I will fight for every single one of those people. Um, if they give me a chance, I will make sure that they get a hearing before a judge. So, but I think that's that's something that you know, I can't change, you know, enforcing the law sometimes means that you're the bad guy and you're not always the nice person when you have to tell someone, unfortunately, your your vote didn't count, but you filled out a provisional, it's now a voter registration and we'll get you for every election moving forward. So that is, I think that is the, the worst and the hardest part of my job. Understood. Are there any abilities that you have in your role that you think are surprising or excessive in any way? Well, I think it's the, you know, it's the, all of the the pieces that go into an election that, you know, I've got really strong people that, you know, fit into each mold. I have a poll worker coordinator. I have someone who handles all of the operational part of the, the vote by mails and the voter list requests. And then I have someone who handles all of our security issues and all of these kind of things. So I think, having the ability to take on this role and can and have a 
oversight on every little aspect down to the voter, you know, from the, the tippy top to the secretary of state, all the way down to the voter is very important to me. So taking that ability to be able to have a conversation with the state division of elections, with the secretary of state about an issue, talking to legislators all the way down to that person who has a question about how their ballot is counted is one of the most important things that I was surprised about myself, that I could, you know, talk to someone who's elected, you know, and give them a very honest opinion talk to them without any hesitation to someone who again is you know is the is the local citizen so i think that ability has has grown when i first started i didn't think that that was something that i had the the power to do but just because you know i'm a i'm a public service per, you know servant person but so are elected officials and i think that when we can talk to each other on the same page and then I can talk to a citizen the same way I would an elected official. I think it's really important and juggling all of these aspects with all of the people that kind of fit into this mold together. I think that that was my superpower, being able to have an excellent relationship with the best county clerk the state has. We work together so well that it, it's probably one of the most important parts because not every county is like that, um, which is unfortunate. There are relationships you know, in these offices that aren't, that don't go so well. And if you don't have um, that person that's got your back and that person that you can work with, it makes your job 10 times harder. I, I am very lucky to be in Hunterdon County. I've lived in Hunterdon County for about 33 years. I grew up in Mercer, relocated here in the early nineties and I love Hunterdon. And, you know, I, like I said, I never thought that I would be a public servant, but I'm one of those rare people that gets to say they absolutely love their job. That's great. So it sounds like you're saying there aren't any excessive powers in your office that you have no. come to, but that you were perhaps pleasantly surprised that you actually have the ability to be fully engaged with the with the with the role and and with the system yeah. of our state. Absolutely. And I guess on the opposite side of that, are there any places within your role that you wish you had influence that you do not? Not really. I think, you know, because this is is really about the public, I, I, you know, sometimes I wish that, you know, we had more control over some of the laws and the things like that. But I think because, you know, I'm a public servant, I don't, you don't want that. You want to make sure that you are serving the public in the best way and that the citizens of this county have the right to vote. And that's really, you know, I don't want to say that that you know I I wish I had more power to turn people away or to 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 count this vote and not count this vote it's not that's not part of my job what I I wish I guess if I had one thing that I could wish for is that I could go to every door knock on every door and educate people on you know on voting and ask them why don't you vote and could I possibly sit down and have a cup of coffee with you and encourage you why participating in the voting process is important? If that could be the one superpower, if you had a, a stadium that we could fill with every citizen that's registered to vote and I could get up on the stage with Mary Melfi and, you know, encourage people to vote, that would be like my the biggest wish that I could ever have. And we've tried to hold workshops um, unsuccessfully. People just um, aren't engaged sometimes. So we're, we're not going to give up. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep trying to, you know, do voter education workshops and hope that the people will become engaged. 
but you know that would be that would be the one thing that I I wish I had power over is to to speak to every registered voter and uh, you know ask them why don't you vote and what can I do to change your mind what can I do to encourage you you know to participate in the process and I don't care which way people vote I just want them to be engaged and you know make it so that what we're doing here is uh, is appreciated and is available to everyone. That's a great answer. I would I would like to be there for many of those conversations. <laughs> I'm very curious. Um, <laughs> we touched on this a little bit, and this could probably go long, so we can we can keep it to a reasonable place. But how how much of any do national politics come in, you know come into play with your role? Uh, they really don't, you know. Uh, so we see trends, you know, in national politics. And again, really, uh, when there's a federal election, you see a higher participation in the voting process. That's really the only thing that makes or breaks or, or, you know, does turn out is really how engaged people are on a federal level. So they really don't really, there's, there's not really any involvement in my office. It's really whoever's at the top of the ticket, how many more voters are they going to attract in that election? And that's really the only involvement that, that national elections have in, in our office. We are. So if anything, the more national drama, potentially the more voter turnout. So that's could be absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and you know we we're engaged with homeland security. You know we are involved in the nuances of safety and you know all of those things in the background that you know people don't necessarily care about or need to know. But there are all kinds of people in the background that you know inform us. You know on you know what the trends are nationally. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, something that's, you know, death threats to election officials across the country or things like that, that will happen. So, I mean, those kind of things can affect us sometimes, but Little Hunterdon County so far, knock on wood, you know, we've been pretty quiet here. And really on a national level, it's really about, it's about turnout. Who's ever on the top of the ticket is really, you know, that's the vote getters. You know, that's the what draws people out, which is unfortunate because we just elected an entire Senate and legislation for another two-year term on, you know, pretty much a statewide turnout of about 20%. <laughs> yeah, that uh, is a little bit scary to think about yeah. oftentimes. So, I, you know, again, we, we've talked about a little bit of the drama around this. So I think this will be the last question related to this. But as a professional who, you know, gets paid to do this, you are not an elected official. This is your right. job. You've taken it seriously for a long time. You've worked in corporate America, as you said. What, if anything, and the answer could be nothing, should people be concerned about in the voting process? Is there anything people should be concerned about? Or if they were, is there somewhere they should be looking? Uh, you know, I think I think a lot of people talk about that and, and talk loosely about the process. And I think we've covered that. But are there any areas where people should be perhaps paying attention if they are concerned about, you know, election? Well, I think that instead of, taking your direction from a social media platform, you should be calling your local board of elections and asking them questions. You know, the one thing that I will tell people is that every board meeting we have is open to the public. There are so many tools and so many things out there that are available to you. It is, we are not a closed book. If you want to watch the machines being programmed, that is an open public meeting. If you want to watch the board review signatures, that is an open public meeting. So I think the the biggest, you know, misconception out there is, you know, and that I would want people to to caution is that 
when you get involved in in rhetoric, know the source, inform, you know, don't just, you know, it's it's an old saying that, you know, it's not everything that's on the internet is true. And if you have a question about an election, you have a question, I don't care where you live, you know, what county that you're in, call the people that actually run the election process and speak to them. And they will sit down and engage with you and talk with you and invite you in and let you see the process or become a poll worker. Instead of being part of the problem, engage. You know, it's a paid position. It's $300, $21.43 an hour to be a poll worker. We are always looking for poll workers. We are always looking to recruit. We're always short with the amount of people that we have. So it's really, really important that if you are questioning it, you have issues, become part of the process, not part of the problem. And, you know, we will more than happy train you. You could see the process from start to finish. But I, I think if I, I can change people's minds and get them to engage, um, you know, that would be the one thing I would tell people to, to, to look out for. Don't believe everything that you read on the internet. <laughs> um, I know we're coming up on on our original lot of time. Do you have time for another question? Yeah, absolutely. All right, lovely. By the way, I, I love your last answer and I, I do think it is important for folks to think about. And, and one thing I've learned emphatically in this journey thus far operating this podcast is, especially if you pick up the phone and call someone, you often get a very lovely, warm and welcoming response. Emails, yeah. I would say, are highly variable. Yeah. Uh, but phone calls thus far have been very effective and and most people are very excited to tell you how things work. Yeah, and answer absolutely. Question, uh, which is lovely. Yeah, we don't uh, have voicemail in this office, believe it or not. So we will answer every phone call that comes in. <laughs> if somebody wants to, you know, I guess apply for the the job you have and and, you know, participate in their area, what skills and experiences do you think someone needs to, uh, you know, work in the board of elections, if anything. And, you know, if, if somebody was looking for your job in some other place, what would you, what would you kind of tell them that are, you know, perhaps some important background elements that so might be helpful? I think you need to have operational experience. I think you need to have, you know, management skills. You need to be a people person. You need to be able to read and absorb a lot of information. You've got to have some knowledge retention skills, which is not for everybody. If you've got any kind of political science background, it's great if you know how government works, but it's not necessary for this job. A lot of what I learned was on the job training. It's not something that, um, you know, you can take an election administration course and you can go to college to learn about election administration, but a lot of what you're going to be learning is on the job. Now, believe it or not, I want to retire someday. So I've already recruited someone to replace me and he'll shadow me for about four or five years and make sure that he goes through every single election, every single nuance of what we do. It's really important that, you know, I leave this job with someone who's confident and can do what I do and do it better. You always want to leave that as a legacy. But if someone's looking to become an election administrator, don't think that it's a it's a power trip that you're going to stand on top of a mountain and just direct people. You've got to want to work with people. I personally get involved in poll worker training. I will go anywhere and speak to any group of people on voting. 
I will go to schools. I will, we, we reach out to colleges to try to recruit poll workers. It's, it's some, you got to want to be able to serve the public. Um, if this is the job that you want to do, it can be a little bit humbling. I've been called names. I take it in stride. I've, you know, speaking to, spoken to people who are very angry. People are very happy. So we've kind of hit all gambits of it. But if this is what you love and you want to serve the public, I would definitely think that, again, you know, any kind of operational management experience that you've got will definitely help you. There are classes that you can take at colleges on election administration, which will definitely help you. But New Jersey has its own set of laws and statutes that we abide by. So it's kind of, you kind of learn as you go. And there's an entire group of administrators around the state that will help you and welcome you and work with you. We have, That's what we have an association for. And I'm really proud of that association. So I, I hold an executive position in that association. So it's something that I, I really truly like. And all 21 counties are engaged in that association. We work well with each other. So you would never get into this job blindly. Um, we have lawyers, we have you know, all kinds of people that are administrators around the the state that have, you know, done it for a couple of years that are, that are, you know, retired, you know, senators, legislators, you know, all kinds of people are, are now superintendents or, or, you know, administrators around the state. So it's, uh, and some people just move up, they start as deputies and then, you know, their person retires and then they take on the job. So I think that's an important point to note, right? The, the folks who are operating our election system are not just appointed or, or elected officials. They are right. professionals who have been vetted. You mm -hmm. have experience. You work your way up through a system. You shadow somebody. You get yeah. hired for the job, presumably most of the time, by the person who already has the job, who knows mm -hmm. that they're passing it along to somebody else, right? Exactly. Who, who can do the job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the way that it should work. You know, and, and again, the makeup around the state, depending on what's, you know, county that you're in, some, you know, some counties have three offices, some have two, we happen to have two, some are broken up between a commissioner of registration and an actual board. Um, but all of these people, you know, they all should be working together in unison with each other, it should be a well oiled machine in every county. Um, so that things, you know, go well. My, I think my objective every election is to not make the newspapers. <laughs> I know I've done a good job. If there's no articles written about, you know, the election in Hunterdon County, then I think I've, I've done well. So, <laughs> I love it. Um, one thing I thought of earlier, uh, I think this is the last major question I, I have is, are you at all involved in draw you know the the sort of drawing of districts or any of that so you know, who who so, gets to vote on what and, and what you know area you're in right so it depends on which lines you're talking about senate legislation i have no say that's all done by um you know by our leaders um we had just they've just redrawn some of the district maps if you're aware of that we had some you know major changes in in our legislative districts where towns were moved now voting districts we are absolutely involved when there are title 19 statutes that require us to make sure that there aren't 750 people more than 750 people that vote in two consecutive federal elections or we're required to provide more machines so if we see that a population we just redid this in Raritan Township this year there were a lot of developments and one of the districts just blew up and so we decided to redraw some of the lines 
and we added a 22nd district in Raritan Township and then kind of, you know, moved it with the help of our, our geological information services department. We, we look at, you know, where the voter population is and then we just redraw the lines. Now, usually when we redraw a line or add a district, it's not going to change who your representative is. So when a, a voting district is a lot different than your legislative or congressional district. So in Hunterdon County, we they made a change. We are now all congressional district seven. We used to be split. Now we're all CD seven. And then we have three legislative districts, 15, 16, and 23. And that was the last change that was made by our, our elected leaders. They redrew the lines so that different towns were moved around so that there were more towns equally spread out between the three uh, the three districts. And, and those are legislative districts, but voting districts is really what I have a say on. And that's really based on population, pattern growth, building, things like that, that we pay attention to. And we can really only do those in certain years. Um, so that was uh, something that we concentrated on with all of the growth that was happening in Raritan Township. We had to expand um, voting districts. So if I'm understanding this correctly, right? The only influence you have there is really rebalancing voting districts so that there Correct. aren't too many people being serviced by one polling location. You got it. But any political redistricting, that is all done by- Yeah, way outside my purview. <laughs> Thank goodness. No, I think it's, yeah, it's it's just, I think it's important to know, right? Like yeah, all these absolutely around a lot and some yeah. of them are super important and other than like the voting district- yeah. It's more operational yeah, change. Exactly. Change. Yeah. Well, this has been such a fabulous conversation. And I really genuinely appreciate your time. And yeah, thank you. absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. I really appreciate you. And you know, thank you. I hope the audience gets some some information that's useful to them. And anytime that we can work on this together. We'll be, you know, Mary and I are uh, like a, the dynamic duo. So we could work together anytime with you. If you ever want to put us together, it is, it's a lot of fun. So we would be more than happy to continue educating the public anytime that we can. So um, please feel free to call back on us again. I, I think she really enjoyed this and I, I really did too. I really want to thank you a lot, Andrew. It was really, this was a great, great experience for me too. Lovely. I really appreciate it. I will be in touch when this episode is ready to go and and thank you so much. And yeah, if there Sounds are- good. Whatever we come up with in the future, I would uh, love to. I'm I'm a big fan of civic education and action, so very happy Me to too. help out. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Enjoy bye -bye. your holiday. Take care. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another podcast of 60 Second Democracy. I hope that you enjoy what you're learning here. I know I'm learning a lot. Please leave comments, subscribe, and in general, let me know whether you're enjoying this, whether you have ideas for other ways to approach this or other folks to interview to learn more about what's happening in your town or your democracy. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on all platforms where podcasts are available. Thanks for listening.